0: Hello, and welcome to another episode from the Global Startup Movement, where every week we bring you conversations, insights, and innovation highlights for emerging startup ecosystems around the world. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Thank you so much for tuning in. I've been getting such positive feedback on our Insight Compilation episodes that I decided to publish another one today, focused on the Middle East and North Africa region. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know that the North Africa region has much more in common with the Middle East countries than the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa. We've had some fantastic guests spanning the region, and after putting this compilation together, I think it turned out to be one of the best yet. We're going to start off with a friend of mine from the World Bank, Ali Abukamail, who is a senior private sector specialist focused on the MENA region. On an episode early last year, Ali and I dove into the World Bank's recent 2018 report titled the Arab World Competitiveness Report, which is the result of a collaboration between the World Economic Forum and the IFC World Bank. The report presents information and data that were compiled and collected by the World Economic Forum. A link to the report will be provided in the show notes below if you'd like to take a deeper dive. But here's Ali's take on the outcomes of the report to set the precedence for this
1: episode. So the report analyzed the overall situation of entrepreneurship development in the Arab world. I followed, together with the co-researchers, the uh, Babson model, which basically analyzes the ecosystem of entrepreneurship under six pillars. And under each of the pillars, we've done our analysis, and then uh, we put recommendations according to a survey that we've done across 100 top entrepreneurs in the region, as well as focus group discussions with some of the champions from the public and private sector. So over there, I would say under policy domain that it's still a cumbersome business environment and uh, only a few countries in the Arab world managed to get out of that and provide a friendly business environment, and namely in the Gulf region. And uh, it could tell clearly from going over the report that The better the business environment is, uh, the more entrepreneurship activities are going to take place, because that's where entrepreneurs would like to work, in a place that is friendly to them. The second area was about the human capital, and it was discussing there that the uh, youth unemployment is one of the largest in the world. There's still a mismatch between the academia and the private sector. There has been some bridging programs that were introduced that have done a lot of uh, good progress. But still, you need to do uh, much more and be innovative in that sense. In terms of culture, I would say it's it's relatively okay, where there is some appreciation for the uh, role of entrepreneurship. They are well featured in media, but still, there is some sort of consensus among the younger generation that working in the government is, is a secure job versus working in the private sector. So this is still an area that you need to tackle. In terms of infrastructure, which is another domain that that we looked at, we thought it was decent. I mean, it's not really hindering growth, except for a couple of countries in in the Arab world. Uh, But for the rest, some of them are very advanced, also in the Gulf region. Overall, the norm was okay, so it's not really a hindering factor to growing entrepreneurship and then we looked at uh, the markets and we thought that was uh, one of the biggest issues that faced high growth entrepreneurs because mena in, in the geographies in mena I mean generally except for a couple of countries are all very small and therefore it's hard for businesses to grow in one country and the accessibility of entrepreneurs across the mena countries was very hard and sometimes you have those visa restrictions etc but also establishing a business as a foreign in some of the countries, is not really friendly. So that's why you see some people even moving from one place to another, uh, and that also leads us to the last domain here, which is financing. Which my, int- my the interesting pattern that we've seen in MENA that people are really moving from one place to another to look for financing, and, and the and the conclusion here, I would say that a it's hard for for the uh, an Arab entrepreneur to look at the ecosystem within one country's boundary and that entrepreneurship can uh, go across these boundaries. And if you look at the trends in the last two, three years, you would see that it's very common that a good, talented entrepreneur would develop a nice business model in Egypt or Lebanon or Jordan. And then uh, after getting the first seat financing, you'd see that they would try to go to work in Dubai or in, in Bahrain or Saudi Arabia, where they would get their Series A and, and establish an office there. So this is a good trend that is happening, and and you, you probably know that Dubai has become kind of the magnet for those good talents, and I recall from the report we looked at, or the analysis we, we did during this report, that around 80% of the ideas, or good ideas, exits, that exited in MENA, was actually based in Dubai, but probably only 5% came from Dubai originally, so it's becoming the magnet. So the conclusion here, b- b- beside that, that countries should open up to entrepreneurs to go, go in and out and, um, and invest is that there should be a role for the private sector and there should be a role for the public sector. The public sector should focus on giving the enabling environment, the access, uh, accessibility to countries, uh, support in the infrastructure, and the private sector should take the lead in, in developing their own models that are basically uh, tackling challenges for the region today. So that's in in general terms what I would say uh, about the report.
0: So the GCC region has emerged as a much more established startup hub than the Northern Africa region and is being led by the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain. I've had the pleasure now of having the CEO and founder of Dubai's most funded startup, Fetcher, on the podcast two different times, Adris Al-Rafai, who is building a Dubai-based e-commerce powerhouse. Fetcher is solving for the last mile delivery in the region and is leading the pack of startups in the region, having raised $62 million since founding. Listening to Idris talk about his expansion plans across the UAE and the rest of the Middle East is incredibly insightful on how to build and scale a tech unicorn across the GCC region.
2: Dubai is a lot more advanced than what Abu Dhabi is. Abu Dhabi has... Uh, i tried to build like some incubator. Uh, so there's like uh, 2454 within Abu Dhabi, probably the biggest one over there. There is, the, there is also like uh, incubators that are focused on very specific segments that are in Abu Dhabi. But I mean, if I had to pick a ratio, it's probably like 90-10 Dubai versus Abu Dhabi. Yeah, it's completely disproportionate. The problem of Dubai, and I think it's, it's becoming a more a bigger and bigger problem every, every, every month, every year, is that how expensive it is. Uh, it becomes very expensive to actually start a company in Dubai. Uh, it's basically the prices of Silicon Valley without having the talents of Silicon Valley. <clears throat> so it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a bit of a conundrum here. Um, so I would say that Dubai needs to be careful if you want to retain a little bit of a, its attractiveness for startups uh, because of that. Uh, so I would say that's one. Two, if I wanted to to go outside of Dubai, the first region uh, probably would be Egypt. Why is because you have quite a lot of tech talent. That's one. It's fairly cheap, so your resources are cheap. So it means that you can actually grow to some, you know some a decent novel without having tons of funding. So that's two. And then three, um, it's quite a sizable market, right? Obviously, it's not the full 80 millions of uh, of Egyptians that are you know that are online, but you have you know a decent market domestically, right? So I think that's probably the the, the first market I would look into. The UAE like attracts. I think that, so there was a there was a Wanda and PayPal did like some kind of a, a some kind of study on this. So I think like Dubai, uh, UAE, sorry, represents like like close to seventy percent or eighty percent of funding from the region, on a dollar amount. So it's also because the mega deals they're all in Dubai. Uh, you know, like the Fetchers, the Kareem's, and obviously they, they skew all numbers, right? I mean, if Kareem raised five hundred million dollars, it's more than the whole ecosystem. You know, <laughs> obviously, like uh, uh, you know, uh, so but. But yeah, if you take, like, outside, even outside of the mega deals, it's still, like, 70% or so on. So you still have a massive disproportion from UAE compared to the others. We have more similarities between a customer in Dubai and a customer in Riyadh than when we have a similarities because between a customer in Riyadh and a customer in Tabuk, you know, like, in small cities uh, across Saudi Arabia, right? So I think that there is, like, some, some unity in that sense with regards to customer behavior. It's obviously, like, the same language with some parents, but they understand the same language it's not exactly the language that would speak sometimes but this is there is a, a universal like, uh, understanding of this so i think that that makes you know that makes it things a little bit easier um which obviously as you venture like westwards like towards libya and then like uh, tunisia uh, algeria uh the language is completely different right so it becomes that here, the barrier language becomes much, much bigger. But in the Gulf and even all the way to Egypt, it's okay, Luckily, like it works. But yeah, so you, 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 see, you, see, you see quite a lot of similarities, even in users' behavior. But expansion is tough, right? Where we, where we think about the Gulf or the Middle East as a, as a, as a whole, uh, and people tend to think that it's like a, a unified entity is just not the case at all. I mean, if you're, I mean, our story, obviously our like, logistics is fairly uh, regulated uh, across all markets, but the rules and regulations are incredible. Let's just they just keep that like in the UA in Saudi Arabia just to give you an example if you want to deliver packages technically you need to have a courier license and we're the only courier license that has been issued in the past 27 years so like there is like massive barriers to entry that is just that I think don't make sense really and I think they're trying to liberalize it you know like to some extent but You know, it's just like some of this stuff just makes it very difficult. You know, every country has different regulations. You need to have a local partner in every country. There is no unifications of rules. It's very difficult to have like two class of shares. So you need to have like no mini agreements everywhere. I mean, the legal work that needs to be done as as soon as you want to think about entering a new market is just tremendous.
0: While market fragmentation doesn't necessarily present as big of a challenge as it does in Europe or Africa, the challenge still persists across the region. But just like Africa, all of the startup activity, venture capital, and market opportunities are concentrated in the major cities in the region. And the larger cities are more similar to each other than expansion from a major city to nearby towns and rural areas in the same country. Now, it's important to note that all because startup activity is concentrated in a few select countries, it does not mean that countries like Palestine, Libya, and Jordan don't present opportunities to introduce massively impactful tech solutions to the market. Our next insight comes from a guest who is doing just that. Here's Jacob Kornblum, the CEO and founder of Sooktel.
3: What Sooktel does is provide custom digital solutions that help U.S. and European companies engage with consumers on their mobile phones in frontier markets, so in places like Pakistan or Egypt, for example.
0: My conversation with Jacob brought to light an important consideration for these type of markets, many of which are current or recent conflict zones, and that's the importance of understanding how to distribute your software solution through the marketing channels and the platforms that have significant scale and distribution to the local population.
3: So as an end user, it first was SMS and then IVR, which is interactive voice response. Again, you know, important to remember that in in many of these countries, Egypt, for example, a good chunk of the population cannot read. And so even if you send them a text message, that's, you know, that's not useful information. So when we first started, yes, it was mainly basic text Content uh, And then also audio content. But what we've since grown into doing is running that whole range. And it's interesting in these kinds of markets. Again, anywhere like Nigeria to Pakistan, for example, you've got a very rich segmentation of mobile users and mobile usage patterns. So these markets are generally seen to be mobile first. That's the best way to reach anyone with information about things. But then you've got smartphone owners at one end of the spectrum and really basic phone owners at the other end. And the challenge, whether you're an aid provider or a consumer retail brand, is how do you reach everyone across that spectrum? And so that's what our solutions do. They enable you to deliver across all channels, meaning if you are a WhatsApp-first user, you're going to get content over WhatsApp. If you are only a text message user, you're going to get content over text messaging. And the software auto-determines what application you're using on your phone and what type of device you have so that it can give you the content through the channel you prefer the most. We spent a lot of time establishing relationships with mobile networks in very difficult places to work like Libya, Iraq, Somalia. You know, all of these kind of challenging markets. And I think what people often forget is that, you know, these are countries with millions of people living in them who want information about things. And just because they may be currently or formerly conflict zones, you know, it by no means suggests that people living in those communities don't want content and information. So, it's important to be able to provide those services in a timely fashion. And that's why we spent a lot of time going into those markets and building those relationships. And that has been a challenge always at the outset. So, you know, the first time you're going into Somalia, well, how do you actually? get to know the mobile networks and establish the relationships uh, with them. Now, what I can say is, you know, we've been doing this now for multiple years. And so that's experience we have under our belt. And, you know, that's what our clients and our, our customers really appreciate. But it's always a challenge when you first go into a new market, especially a market that has been or is a conflict zone. How do you actually get those relationships set up?
0: Heading on over to one of the most interesting success stories among the Middle East startup ecosystems. We're joined by Dr. Simon Galpin, who was appointed Managing Director of the Bahrain Economic Development Board a few years ago. Simon has a very unique perspective, having led economic development for Scotland, Hong Kong, and Bahrain over the course of his very successful career. Take a listen to how Bahrain has cultivated a thriving fintech ecosystem, despite being one of the smaller economies in the GCC by GDP measures.
4: Bahrain actually, has, as I've learned since I've been here, a really strong track record as a pioneer and as a leader in many, many sectors. It was a leader in Islamic banking. It was really the first major international financial center in the Gulf, going back to the late 70s and 80s. So it has a real track record in this in this type of space. Where Bahrain has an edge and an advantage is because it's been a financial center for quite a few decades, we've got a great pool of talent, a great pool of Bahraini talent, and the majority of people working in our financial services industry are Bahrainis, a great pool of talent that have decades of experience. And so that's the pool of talent that, fintech startups can draw on. It's also uh, a place where, you know, founders and entrepreneurs that maybe have worked for financial institutions can then, you know, jump ship and start their own fintech business when they see an opportunity or a gap in the market. And I think this is something that Bahrain shares with Hong Kong, because in Hong Kong, most of the emerging fintech companies are founders and teams that have come out of financial institutions. They're not your teenager in their parents' garage. These are often people in their 30s or 40s that have saved a bit of money, have really been thinking about this idea, and now are going to bring it into, into fruition and give up their day job. So often these businesses, these, these, these fintech companies, have a much higher survival rate than you might find from other smaller bootstrap startups. In a number of our neighboring economies, most of this activity is corralled and contained within certain free zones, focusing on a particular industry or sector. But here in Bahrain, you know, we allow businesses in most sectors, in most activities, to have 100% foreign ownership. So you don't need a local Bahraini partner to start the business. But once you've started a business in Bahrain, You can start doing business, selling your product or service in Bahrain, and right across the MENA region, you're not restricted by some of those free trade zone restrictions at all. So that's the different thing. That sets Bahrain apart from most of our other economies in this region. And the interesting thing is that now our regulator, the central bank of Bahrain, are really on board. We've moved very, very quickly from almost zero to hero in terms of putting in place the right regulations to really encourage and foster innovation in fintech. So we already have in place regulations that allow crowdfunding, and we also already have in place a regulatory sandbox that allows people to test new fintech ideas and products onshore in Bahrain.
0: Now, we can't discuss Middle East startup ecosystems without discussing Israel. Tel Aviv consistently ranks in the top seven cities globally for startups, almost always topping the charts for funding, market reach, connectedness, and talent. I had the pleasure last year to connect with Yarev Lotin from Startup Nation Central, which is an independent nonprofit that builds bridges to Israeli innovation, connecting business, government, and NGO leaders from all around the world with Israeli innovation. We discussed all the startup hubs within the Israeli ecosystem, and all of the industry sectors for which Israel is currently leading the way?
5: Naturally, the, the greater Tel Aviv area is the, the, the major one in terms of the number of companies and, and its influence on the overall Israeli ecosystem. There are like over 3,000 companies in the greater Tel Aviv area these days, whereas in Jerusalem, you would have 500 companies. But again, you need also to look at the... At the, at the uh, the vector and the vector is that in Jerusalem, eight years ago, we had approximately 100 companies. So the move in, within eight years to five to five times that in terms num- of number of companies is super interesting. I think that there are uh, some some definitely some strong reasons for that to happen. One of them is the uh, is Nir Barakat, the, the mayor of Jerusalem, former mayor, who came from the, the high tech sector and brought with him. Uh, I think as uh, an a an high-tech approach, sort of creating this petri dish of uh, helping companies really prosper in the Jerusalem environment. I think that this, along with what I mentioned before, the the human capital potential in terms of the, the ultra-orthodox community, women in in this sense, and the uh, and the Arab community, also very significant within the Jerusalem city and community, are the two reasons why this sector has grown. And by the way, you know, it's, it's a small anecdote, but still makes makes the, the point, is that you would find like a, a WhatsApp group of over 80 entrepreneurs and, and tech leaders in, in Jerusalem that are on a daily basis compete within the companies. And they would be on this WhatsApp group and help one another when it comes to developing and, and growing within the ecosystem because they are part of the Jerusalem group. So there is no contrast between the two, but we do see that the Jerusalem ecosystem is booming and growing tremendously. And I think it can really be a source of additional growth to the overall ecosystem in, in Israel. If you look at the agriculture companies, most of, most of them are not in the Tel Aviv area. I mean, some of them, especially those dealing with, with, uh, smart farming, for example, can be in the center. And operate the solutions but many of them are actually either in the north or in the south of Israel so this is you know sort of sort of hubs and the government also supports the northern hub being created for industry as well as for uh, agriculture so this is one I think the, the Haifa one which is also in the north of Israel but again uh, this distance, is the distances in Israel are quite small so it's like a one hour and a half drive from Tel Aviv but the Haifa one is very, very important all through the years. Uh, Intel operated there and, and many, many of the global Microsoft, so many of the, and Google also have a, a campus there. Many of the largest uh, multinationals actually open R&D centers there. The other ecosystem I would look at would be the southern one around Bergeva, uh, where they try to focus more on the cyber companies and so on. Again, those are not black and white. It's not if you come to Grasheva, you came to cyber city, but still there is focus uh, on this area and and, and, and around these technologies. And and this is another hub that is growing steadily over the last few years. Cyber security is something that is more and more important and should be definitely looked at, especially in Israel, because Israel uh, has tremendous technology and solutions it has to offer. And very very good human capital to promote the sector. So this is definitely super interesting, and and we see the super interesting sector, and we see see it breaking time after time the limits and the and the and the, and the benchmarks it, it used to have in terms of of raising and in terms of exits. So this is one. But I think that the sectors we actually work on, especially Industry 4.0, which I think is. Is also considered to be the fourth industrial revolution. It's definitely going to be one of the big promises. It's, it's like super high potential sector, if you want to call it the sector. Actually, by it's it's a group of technologies that aims at really making a revolution in the overall way we manufacture and and deliver products. And it goes all through the verticals, from gas and oil all the way to to, to logistics in between. Uh, consumer goods and just name it. So it's different application in different sectors, in different verticals, yet I think it's going to be super interesting. I think that worldwide, by the way, in the US and Europe, everyone is still struggling to understand what it means and how to invest in it. Very few funds are actually truly focused on it. That's part of the opportunity. We see this very relatively small sector being dominated by technologies where Israel is very strong at AI, big data, analytics and so on, as well as cyber, because there is a cyber section for operational technologies as opposed to information technologies that everybody knows that it is very an integral part of this sector. And I think that that this is going to be a huge opportunity for Israeli as well as companies worldwide dealing with this, with these challenges. And, uh, I think there is a lot of ability for entrepreneurs to, to move into this sector from different sectors because we believe innovation. I personally believe that innovation is more about thinking from a different box than just, you know, thinking out of the box because it's all about taking solutions and a skill set of, of developing new technologies and applying it to, to different uh, challenges. And I think we're going to Israel as small as it is. It's going to be very surprising in this sense. Agritech, definitely, if, if we manage to close those gaps that I mentioned, Israel has so much to offer in this sense. Uh, and Digital Health uh, is, is, again, experienced tremendous growth in the last few years in Israel. And we see it in the way the ecosystem and having more and more Japanese companies coming to look for Digital Health in Israel. We see more and more... US health, health providers and payers coming to Israel and setting their innovation arms and so on in Israel. So it's super, super interesting.
0: I hope you enjoyed this special installment of our top five MENA Insights compilation episode. And I want to finish off where we started with Ali Aboukamil. One ecosystem that I recently learned about from Ali was Kuwait. Kuwait isn't a country that gets a lot of attention from Western media. And yet, a quick Google search will show you just how beautiful of a country it is. So I think it's important to leave you all with another clip from my conversation with Ali to give a final insight into the region and why Kuwait is such a special country.
1: Let me tell you something. When I visited Kuwait for work first in 2013, people were celebrating that the first startup weekend is taking place, like gossiping, saying that you should go there. It's an incredible event, etc. When I left Kuwait in 2015, like two years onwards, these things were happening every day. So I would tell you that there has been an exponential growth in the number of entrepreneurship activities, the quality of businesses, and the government support over these two, three years. And it's still going on for an exponential rate. And now you see funds coming out of Kuwait, big startups that are getting big uh, exits. As well as one of, one of them actually was Talabat, which was the second biggest exit in the Arab world, which was uh, sold for 170 million, as they call, probably in uh, 2014 or 15. So it, there is a good business, I mean, there is a good ecosystem there. At the heart of it, it's the sophistication of the people. The quality of the Kuwaiti entrepreneur is one of the best in the region. They're well exposed. They have great understanding for the business dynamics. They are traders by nature. So I would say that's at the core of it. The government in the last few years have put some programs to support them, some of which worked well, some of which didn't work well. But in general, uh, the whole movement of the development of the ecosystem is in the right direction, which is something that we can see now in results uh, in terms of exits and numbers of startups or new entries to the business community.
0: Thanks again for tuning in this week and be sure to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app and tune back in next week for another podcast episode from the global startup movement.